want to talk about is someone uh, named Hannah in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 1, you can turn your Bibles there. And uh, if it's on your phone, we also have a mobile app on the App Store or Google Play Store. You can search HMCC, and we'll follow along with the notes, and there will be some fill-in-the-blank there as well. So while you're looking for that, I just wanted to start with a question for us this morning. You don't have to answer. What is your greatest weakness? Some of you have practiced answering that question. This is interview season, and some of you are still looking for internships, right? <laughs> Any of you looking for internships, we've got to pray for you still for the summer. And <clears throat> what is your great, greatest weakness, and are you okay with it? Are you trying to run away from it as fast as possible? Are you the type of person you're constantly trying to work on it, trying to overcome and some of us, I, I would gather to believe, or most of us, we would admit that we have weaknesses. Uh, in fact, you know, all of us, we have some sort of weakness, and I'm, maybe there's a small minority of us who are like, I'm perfect, right? And I don't have any weaknesses. Hopefully that's none of us here. But all of us, to some extent, some way, shape, or form, we have certain weaknesses that we're always trying to develop and work through. And it's always difficult whether we're students or we're working, when it comes to that interview question and someone asks us, what is your greatest weakness? We always struggle. Because in the interview, you don't want to present yourself as like saying something that you're actually really good at because then you just come off as like arrogant and proud. Like my greatest weakness is I'm like too good at everything and I'm too perfectionist and like you know, all this kind of stuff. And then of course the interviewer can totally see right through you and they're like, Hmm, you know, and just like checking things off. Nope. Or the other part that's hard is being able to share a weakness that's too honest to the point where like the interviewer's like, huh? <laughs> I don't know if I want to hire that kind of person. And so when we think about weaknesses, when we think about the difficulties that we go through, oftentimes these are the very things that hinder us from approaching God or hinder us from living out the kind of life that Jesus Christ really envisions for us. It helps us to see in a different way. And before we get into the passage, I wanted to show us a video of people campaigning for a very important job. And they were asked this question, what is your greatest weakness? Because even as just normal everyday people, we struggle with this. How much more do those who have to appear the most important, the most put together, the most on point with everything that they say. And so I want to show you a video of, uh, I think it was this past US American election of the Republican Party candidate debate. And the moderators opened up the debate with the question, what is your greatest weakness? To the Republican candidates of the US election, I think it was back in 2016. Uh, it is quite interesting what they say and uh, different things that we can learn about human nature as we hear their responses. So let's watch this video together. <laughs> All right. When I watched this video, I realized the US is in big trouble, right? <laughs> what makes it so difficult for us to be honest with our weaknesses? I think for the, the GOP candidates, the Republican Party, I don't know if you follow US politics, but clearly, you know, it's quite difficult for even the best, the leaders, those who are supposed to be the most persuasive, the most uh, 
<coughs> charismatic, the leaders of the, what some people refer to as the richest country in the world. For them to not even be able to share their weaknesses in a way that is persuasive, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing the audience laugh because we can't take them seriously. And, it's, and it's, it's so interesting that even those are not able to be able to communicate or admit to really reveal what their weaknesses show about who they are. And how much more is it difficult for us to be able to present our weaknesses in who we are? In fact, for many of us, when we look at the world, when we see a job interview, when we see our friendships, when we see you know, this, this exam or these, these classmates that we have, our go-to is we always want to present some kind of image that's put together. Isn't that right? We always want to present ourselves in a particular way where we look funny, we look smart, we look strong, and we don't reveal or show the aspects of ourselves that are less than desirable. But this is the paradox of the Christian life, is that God's universe is totally different. It talks about how he uses the weak to shame the strong. It talks about how Jesus spent the time with the least of these in order to demonstrate that his kingdom is totally different. And it gives us hope that perhaps there is something heroic about living through our weaknesses and through our brokenness. And that's what we want to talk about today. What would it be like for us to be a church, for us to be people of God that can live out through our weaknesses, through our brokenness, so that we can accomplish something greater than what we could have ever imagined on our own? Because God is actually with us. And I want to give us the one thing for this morning. The one thing is that God's faithfulness enables us to be broken and heroic at the same time. It's God's faithfulness that enables us to be broken and heroic at the same time. And it's no other power, no other worldly organization or mantra or philosophy that will enable us to do this, as we've seen you know, from the video. But it's really through God's faithfulness that will enable us to be broken and heroic at the same time. I want to give us two main concepts or points for how we can be broken and heroic at the same time. The first point that as we look into Hannah's life in 1 Samuel 1 is that we ought to be honest but submitted. We need to be honest but submitted. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Hopefully you've turned to 1 Samuel 1. If not, hopefully uh, that person next to you will allow you to share. But let's read one, uh, verses 1 to 5 uh, in 1 Samuel 1. It says, There was a certain man of Ramathan Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Huhu, son of Zoph, son of Ephrite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This is my weakness. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. When we look through this passage, immediately we notice a few things about Elkanah and his family. We notice, number one, that Hannah wasn't able to have children. 
It said the Lord had closed her womb. The second thing we noticed was that her rival, Peninnah, had children. And back in the Old Testament, polygamy was fairly common, as we see in, in, uh, in Abraham's life and a lot of his offspring. They had so many different wives. And then one other thing that we noticed is that they went up for the yearly sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh. And this paints the background of a situation that Hannah encounters and actually her life, a lot of her life story in which enables her or demonstrates how she's honest but submitted. And so let's look at different aspects that we can learn from Hannah about being honest and submitted. And the first aspect is that we can be honest and submitted in our burdens and the burdens that we carry and the difficulties and the trials that we encounter. Let's read and continue on in verses 6 to 9. It says, And her rival, who is Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you not weep? Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Immediately we look in this passage and we see this just messed up family dynamic. Immediately we see this just complicated family dynamic and it's very similar to many of the other families we see in the Old Testament. How broken the family of Jacob and Isaac was as they had lots of wives and the wives were competing to see who could have more children. And we see the same thing happening here between Hannah and Peninnah where Peninnah would be provoking Hannah over and over again because she couldn't have children. And we notice immediately there were several burdens right off the beginning of this passage that Hannah needed to bear, and oftentimes on her own. In verse 5, we see that God closed Hannah's womb. And because of that, in verse 6, Peninnah provoked her grievously to irritate her. And for some background in the Old Testament, when someone was, womb, was, was childless, they weren't able to have children, that was oftentimes a sign of shame. That was a sign of deep, it was almost seen as a curse from God that you could not have children. And oftentimes you would be ostracized, ridiculed. You would be considered worthless because oftentimes for wives that would be your main purpose or your main role, to have children, to bear the husband a son. In verse 7, another burden. If that wasn't enough, we see in verse 7 that Hannah had to deal with this year after year after year. Every single year, as according to the Jewish tradition, they would go, their whole family would go to Shiloh to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And each time this would happen, where Peninnah would provoke her, would ridicule her, and Hannah would just break down. And if that wasn't enough, in verse 8, Hannah had a husband who totally did not understand her. I don't know if you caught that, where Elkanah says, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more than 10 sons to you, right? Wives, forgive us for being just thick-headed and, you know, dumb husbands, right? 
Like sometimes where we're just so, you know, you're in discomfort or you're just weeping or mourning over something. And we're like, why? Why are you so sad? Everything's great. Like we have a great life and look at me. And, you know, I've been doing all these things. Like, please, husbands, I'm learning to be a husband. And for you future husbands, learn from this. Please don't be thick-headed. Understand and empathize with your wife. Hannah had to deal with not only her own situation. Having a childless life was difficult enough. But she had someone else who would constantly provoke her. And the very person that was supposed to support her the most, her husband, who tried to do something by offering her a double portion, could only say, am I not more than 10 sons to you? Can you imagine how alone she must have felt? How difficult she must have felt like this was my own burden to carry. There's no one else who can empathize with me. There's no one else who understands the situation that I'm going through. God, where are you? Do not hear me. Do not know the suffering that I'm enduring right now. And I'm wondering if some of us can identify with Hannah in this situation. Some of our past hurts that go way back into our past. Some of us, we've had verbal abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. And whether it was our fault or not, we put the blame on ourselves and we feel like, I have to hold this burden to myself. And no one else understands. In fact, the person who was the perpetrator, they seem to just seem totally okay. And I, I have to bear this on my own. Other of us have other family issues, whether it's divorce or separated parents. And it impacts us. And it weighs on us. Others of us, we, we feel like we need to be the breadwinner, but for whatever reason, we just aren't able to provide. Whether for our family, for our parents, we can't get that promotion we wanted. We have a disability, a condition that we're just like, God, why? Why is it that you've given this to me? And many of us, we can identify with Hannah through her trials and, and through her difficulties. And we just feel hopeless. And we feel powerless to do anything about it. But let's look at how Hannah actually responds to the situation. We notice that Hannah is honest about her struggles in verse 10. It says the word, the term, deeply distressed. That word deeply distressed in the original language, it means bitterness. It means just in anguish. And I don't know for how many of you have read the book of Ruth before, but Ruth had a mother named Naomi. And when Naomi lost both of her sons, she went back to her home and she told the people, call me Mara. That same word is the word used for Mara, which means bitterness. It means in deep anguish. It means someone who's in deep pain because of great loss, because of great injustice, because of great pain that they've experienced. The second part that she mentions, how she's honest, she, she just weeps bitterly. She wept bitterly. That phrase, wept bitterly, in the original language, it means to weep or to bewail. And I know some of us, we have different crying styles, right? I love it when, uh, especially during baptism, we're getting really emotional, and some people have like the, you know, like cry, and some people just kind of tear up silently. And some people have that like crazy cry, right? 
Like when we're sharing a testimony, and no offense to those of you who have the crazy cry, but it's kind of like you're sharing the testimony, you're like, and God was, and you're like, I'm, I'm super blessed that you're crying right now, but I can't understand a word that you're saying, right? And so, you know, I try to encourage those people, please just, just take a moment. Like there's tissue right there. Uh, praise God for the AV team. They always have tissue available, right? Just take a moment, turn around, just collect yourself, and just... And then keep going on. Just have your moment and let God minister to you and just keep going. Now what's Hannah's bewailing, right? Bewailing is not just like, a, like tears going up. It's like, ah! You know, it's like, Lord, you know, what is going on? And, I, and I, when we think about like who she is, she is this woman who is part of this family who is worshiping the God year after year and you know, in most respects, especially during that time, this was the time of judges when everything was lawless. Everyone did things as they pleased. For her to have a family who was still committed to the Lord was pretty decent. But the situation that she was in, the emotions that she experienced, she wasn't afraid of being honest with who she was and how she felt. In verse 16, we want to skip a little bit. I just wanted to mention this because... It reflects how she felt. In verse 16, she says, Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. In the New Living Translation, that phrase of anxiety and vexation, it means great anguish and sorrow. In the New King James Version, it says, Abundance of my complaint and grief. She was in anguish. She was sorrowful. She was complaining. She had such grief that she was going through. And I know so many times, like in church, we say, you know, you need to have perspective. Stop complaining. See the goodness of God. We go through the the tools and the alive. We're saying equipped to make disciples. You need to have the goodness of God perspective in your life. But this is the issue. How many of us, we cover up our worries, we cover up our pain, we cover up our emotions, and we try to put on this, like, I'm a good church person faith. You know how it goes. And you're sitting around in life group or an LCG, and you sit there and you're saying, hey, how's life? Oh, it's good. It's good. It's really good. And you just share something like, oh, because you know you've been in church culture long enough, you're like, oh, I should... But even though it's good, I should share something that's a little bit, like, not so good so that that person is at least satisfied with my answer, right? So like, oh, yeah, but I've been struggling with this, like, you know, you know the struggle that I've been struggling with for so long, and it's such a struggle, and I've been struggling, and, you know, just pray for me, please, because it's a, such a struggle. <laughs> and we say something generic like that. And this is the thing, is, is when we share that, and we just, it's the sharing time, and you share something generic, It doesn't benefit anyone. No one learns more about you, and you don't benefit from being open and honest with yourself. Because the very person that deceives us the most is who? It's ourselves. That's the scary part of living this Christian life, especially being in church for as long as we've been in. For many of us, we've been, you know, here for the last year, and already we've kind of gotten to this culture. We've gotten used to it. We say the the cool phrases, oh, just... Be a blessing to each other. You're blessed to be a blessing. Let me pray for you. Little emoji, right? And the more emojis you put, the more you prayed for that person. 
We get so conditioned to know exactly what to say, but we're never honest with who we are. And this is the struggle. And we look at Hannah's life and we see she was totally honest about who she was, what she was going through. I'm wondering what would it be like if we were a church that, was, that would be painfully honest with ourselves and with other people about what we're going through. Not excusing our feelings, not admitting that, not saying that this is okay, but being honest with this is who we are, this is where we're at. When's the last time we said, you know what, I'm actually very angry with God. Because of this pain that I'm going through, I can't bear it right now. How many of us, we ask for prayer to say, hey, I'm, I'm really not doing well at this moment. And I know I'm supposed to serve. I know I'm supposed to do these things. Lord, guys, please pray for me because I know my temptation is just to run away and give up. And to be excruciating specific about what you're going through. Like I'm being tempted by these sins. I'm being uh, just persuaded by these people. Like this job that I'm constantly longing for, a, this opportunity came back again, and you know, I know my heart, I just want to grab it. I want to give everything up and just go for it. I don't care about what serving responsibilities I have. I don't care about what promises I've made to God. How many of us were honest about the things that we go through, the, the heart condition that we have? And the scary thing is we deceive ourselves to thinking that we're doing okay, that we're not that bad. But it's only when we're able to be honest with ourselves and with others that we can start that process of even coming back to God, to restoring a perspective, to coming and saying, you know what, but God, you're still, you're still good. You're still faithful. Um, I want to read this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 7 to 12, it's not on the PowerPoint, but it was just something as I was coming up here I was thinking about. And I'll just read it for us. It says, we have this treasure from God, but we are like clay jars that hold the treasure. This shows that the great power is from God, not from us. We have troubles all around us, but we are not defeated. We do not know what to do, but we do not give up the hope of living. We are persecuted, but God does not leave us. We are hurt sometimes, but we are not destroyed. We carry the death of Jesus in our own bodies so that the life of Jesus can also be seen in our bodies. We are alive, but for Jesus, we are always in the danger of death so that the life of Jesus can be seen in our bodies that die. So death is working in us, but life is working in you. What Paul is saying in this quote, in this verse to the Corinthian church, he's saying, we are going through some of the most incredible trials that we've ever experienced. We, are, we, are, we, are, we have troubles, but we're not defeated. We don't know what to do, but we don't give up hope. We are persecuted. We are being killed. But God does not leave us. You know the crazy thing about that passage is he doesn't say, oh, we're doing all right. He doesn't say, like, everything is perfect. He doesn't say, like, wow, missions has been so awesome and I've had no problems whatsoever. But where's the power of God that comes out? It comes out because he admits that he has been going through these trials. 
It comes out because he's honest with himself and with the conditions that they've been through. And that magnifies God that much more. Some of us, we memorize that verse. We talk about boasting in our weaknesses. But how many of us, we really live it out to say, God, it's when I am weak that you are strong. It's when I am honest in admitting the weaknesses that I have, the brokenness, the burdens that I have, that Christ is magnified in my life. This is the crazy thing about Hannah, is that that last verse that we read, in verse 9, it says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Why does Hannah pray? For someone to be so in pain, for someone to be so broken, for someone to be so burdened, to the point where she cannot have children, but she prays. She postured herself in a position that enables God to be magnified. We don't know what the end story is yet. We'll read that later in the second point. But her posture, her attitude is to say, Lord, I am I'm being brutally honest with my burdens with you right now. And I need some kind of help. And that's the posture that I want to challenge us this morning for us, is what is it that we respond with? How do we respond in these situations where we see these burdens? couple of different examples. Not giving that job offer that you've been hoping for. Friendships not working out in the way that you imagined it to be. Health issues that you have. Conditions that were just totally out of your control. Family, marital problems that come up over and over again. Some of you know there are protests happening later today about a law that's going on in Hong Kong. Some of us are hopeless. Regardless of what end of the political spectrum is, what is your response in a situation that you cannot control? That you feel like there's all these people from both sides of the spectrum, like waging war against you, literally. Are you honest to God? Or do you take things into your own hand? Is prayer your first response? Or potentially do we see that God is somehow in control and has a greater purpose in everything? One thing that we oftentimes say in our church is that your greatest misery will become your greatest ministry. I'm wondering how many of us we can see that. We can see that the trials that we go through today, the, the hurts that we've had in the past, the pain, the suffering, the difficulty that we have now and yesterday, that tomorrow it will be something that God can use to minister unto someone else, that can lift someone else out of the same burdens, the same trials, the same difficulties that we've gone through. But as God works through us, he uses us then to love and to minister to someone else. I pray that we will be a church that we could be ministers of the gospel, not out of our perfection, but out of our burdens that we experience. And let's be that honest church. Let's be honest in that way. And we also want to be submitted not only in our burdens, but also in our prayer. Let's continue on and read verses 11 through 20. And, and she vowed a vow. This is Hannah speaking, uh, is talking about Hannah. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, Eli was the priest at that time, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. 
And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. When we see not only Hannah's burdens being able to be honest, we see now her prayer to God. And her prayer is also a symbol and a posture of her being able to be honest with God, but submit to God at the same time. We notice that Hannah shared honestly with God in her prayer. She asked for three things. She said, look on the affliction of your servant. Affliction is just similar to suffering. Look at the suffering of your servant. She asked God to remember her, and she asked God to give her a son. And when we look at this prayer, I mean, oftentimes we make the mistake of looking at everything in the Old Testament and saying, oh, this is the way it must be done because we saw people in the Old Testament doing it. That's not true, because if that was true, polygamy would be okay, but clearly that's not okay, right? So when we look at Hannah's prayer, oftentimes we think, oh, okay, this is the way that we ought to pray, so therefore I must make deals with God. Hannah seemed to negotiate with God. But we know from other passages that putting God to the test negotiating with him, making these kind of deals is something that we ought not to do. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, in the New Living Translation, it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So Hannah here, he says, she goes to God and she's pouring out her burdens and she's sharing all these things and she makes this vow to God. She says, God, if you give me a son, if you remember me, then I will give him back to you. And not only I'll sweeten the deal for you, God, not only will I give him back to you, but I'm going to make him a Nazarite. A Nazarite was one of those people who was set apart for God. They were special. They were to not drink any wine. They were to never shave their heads as a symbol that they were set apart for God. And so when we look at this prayer, we're like, Hannah, are you... you know, I think some of us are judging Hannah right now. <laughs> we're like, that's such a bad prayer, Hannah. Shame on you, Right? Some of us were thinking like, oh, I, but some of us, we've prayed those kind of prayers before. We've lifted up those kind of prayers before. And there are a lot of different types of prayers that we lift up, whether it's negotiation prayers with God. God, if you, if you do this for me, then I'll obey you. Some of us, we, we, we think that the more we pray, the more we're going to get from God. Some of us, we, we pray and, and, you know, because, you know, in our church, there are some people who speak in tongues. We're like, oh, if I could only pray in tongues, then everything would be better. I should have bought a Honda, but bought a Kia instead, right? We, we like, oh, please, Lord, I, you know, let me have more Japanese cars so I can pray in tongues, you know? Others of us, you know, we pray in, in really interesting ways. We pray, but we add, like, our own perspective, our own thoughts into it. And we say, Lord, I know with great power comes great responsibility. As Uncle Ben said... You know, in Spider-Man, right? And we're like trying to integrate that kind of stuff. Or, you know, some of us, the only time we pray is we pray for the food. And we pray for everything when we pray for the food, 
like, Lord, please, like, bless my internship and help me to get this. And thank you for the food. Amen, you know? <clears throat> and everyone else is, that's sitting there with you like, hurry up. I'm hungry, right? Don't be that person. Pray on your own. But this is the question is, how we pray reveals something about our hearts. How we pray, what we pray for, the attitude that we pray for reveals something about the condition of our hearts. When Hannah prayed, what do we see about her heart? What traits of prayer can we learn from Hannah? In verse 12, we see that she continues to pray. Not only does she make that vow, which in Scripture we see it's not good to test the Lord, but after she made that vow, what does it say? She says, it's as she continued praying before the Lord. So it just wasn't a one-time prayer. It wasn't just like a one-time thing that you said, okay, let me just pray for this, but I'm going to continue to pray over and over again. I'm going to continue on, even though I've already lifted up that prayer. There's something about praying continuously that shows us whether or not we're really desperate for whatever it is that we're asking for. Some of us, we're praying for family members or siblings or friends to come to know Christ. Like, Lord, why aren't you coming to help, help me do something in their lives? Well, my question is, how many of us, we've diligently prayed for them day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? It's so telling of what we care about when our prayers are just once in a while. Shotgun prayers. The second thing she does, she doesn't get defensive. Even as she's praying, you know, it's, I don't know why, but Hannah just has bad, bad encounters with men. She just doesn't get it with men, right? Like, her husband says, am I not worth more, ten, more than 10 sons to you? And then Eli, who's the priest? The priest is supposed to be like this holy guy, and what does he say? He took her to be a drunken man. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And immediately, as she's praying, what could she have? She could have gotten really defensive. She could have been like, who the heck are you? You know, like, aren't you supposed to be the priest? Shame on you. You know, I was praying. Look at, you're not discerning priest, you know. Get out of here. But what does she say? She just says calmly. She says, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. She shares about how she has been pouring out her soul before the Lord. She doesn't get defensive, but she's, she's just honest. She's humble. I don't know how many times in our prayers, whether it's some, while we're praying in public, we get really insecure because we're wondering about what other people are thinking about us, or even with God, right? Anytime, whether it's like we're listening to a message, we're spending time in worship, and we're praying, and there's this little voice. Maybe it's not audible. You just get this feeling of God challenging us with something, speaking to us about something, exposing some kind of issue in our lives. What's our first reaction? to get defensive, to protect ourselves. Whether it's someone bringing something up with us, exposing some kind of sin issue, or it's us not wanting to deal with something that we need to deal with, is that we immediately close up. We get self-centered, and we think that everything is against us, everyone is against us. You totally miss the point of prayer which is to really humble ourselves, to change ourselves, to help us to see God's perspective instead of our own perspective. 
That's what Hannah was able to see. And in verse 18, we see that she also trusts in the Lord. She trusts in the Lord. Something special happens in between the time she starts praying and the time she leaves. Because in verse 18, it says, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. I don't know what happened. Something. It definitely wasn't Eli's message. You know, Eli says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you made to him. I, to be honest, I really don't think it's like because Eli said that, that now she's all of a sudden happy, you know, because he called her just now, two sentences ago, a drunken woman. I don't think Hannah's that easily fooled that somehow that statement is going to change her whole perspective. But something about that time in prayer, something about spending that time with God, pouring out her life, pouring out her burdens, pouring out everything, but not being defensive, being honest with herself and with God. Praying continually. Something about that encounter with God turned her whole perspective and her whole mindset from someone who had been vexed, someone who was anxious, someone who was in anguish, someone who was broken, to someone who was no longer sad, to someone who had a lightness of spirit, to someone who totally had a renewed heart. I'm wondering how many of us, we expect something to happen when we come to pray. When we come to pray, is it just lip service because we're supposed to do it? Or is it because we really believe God is going to meet us in that moment? And he knows what we're feeling. And he knows exactly what our hearts are going through. And we believe that through that moment, God is going to totally change our mindset, our perspective, our emotions. And we're going to leave that moment. Whenever we have an encounter with God, we will never leave the same. I mean, we read, we read passages in, in, in the Old Testament where Moses, he would go to the tabernacle, and after he spent time with God, his face would be shining so brightly that other people, they had to cover, they could not look at it. He had to cover his face with a veil. You know, some of us, we read that, and we're like, you know, that's just Moses. That's just God. That's just the tabernacle. That was the Old Testament. How many of us, we've experienced those times? A prayer of worship. You, you only can think of those times where it was like that retreat like five years ago. For some of us, that retreat like 10 years ago. I had that one moment, but God can't do that normally. That's never going to happen on my own. Do we think that God is only the God of retreats? The God of like loud worship music? The God of big drums? Doom, 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 doom. And then God speaks, you know, like, oh, you're thumping. What, what does that mean? Praise God for our drummer. But how many of us we really believe that God is going to meet us in that moment? In a still small voice. And he's going to totally change our whole countenance, our whole perspective, the way that we think, our perspective, and everything that we see with regards to every trial that we've been going through. And what is it that allows Hannah to have this kind of mentality? I want to point us to verse 11 again. In the very beginning of our prayer, this reveals something about her perspective about God, which is, I feel like, something that we really need to get. In verse 11, I want to read it again in a couple other translations. She says, O Lord of hosts, that statement or that name for God in the New Living Translation is translated as O Lord of heaven's armies. In the New Century Version, it says, Lord all-powerful. This is the difference between a prayer that has power and real transformative effect versus a prayer that is totally useless. 
is the prayer of how you see God. Hannah sees God as the Lord of the whole universe, the Lord of the heaven's armies, the Lord that created the sun, the moon, the stars, all the animals, you and I. She sees God as this creator God who has all the power everywhere and everything. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. How many of us, we pray like we believe in a God like that? Or how many of us, we pray to an impotent God that we don't really believe is able to answer, able to work, able to move? And this is the, the amazing thing about Hannah is that even in that prayer, even though she's burdened, even though she's honest, even though she has so much pain, she's submitted to the God who is king of all kings, Lord of all lords. That even though she has gone through all the things that she has gone through, she's still able to say, God, I submit to you as the creator of the universe, and my life is in your hands. I want to challenge us this morning. How many of us are able to share honestly with God in our prayers? How many of us are able to submit to him in our prayers? To say, God, you are king, you are Lord, so whatever it is that you want, I'm ready to humble myself. Praying for things, not according to our own timing, surrendering the things that we need to surrender to him. To say, God, you are more than everything to me. And so we see this example of Hannah being honest but submitted. And the second point, as we close, is not only to be honest and submitted, but we want to be independent but obedient. We not only want to be honest but submitted, but we, we also want to be <clears throat> independent but obedient. Let's continue on and read the last couple of verses here, verses 21 to 28. So the, mount, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. As we read and we see this passage, and when we look it through, you know, how is it that we ought to be independent but obedient? The first thing that we notice is that Hannah did not go up to worship as usual. Hannah didn't go up. It was a family yearly tradition. Elkanah would take him and his wives and his children and go up to worship the Lord. And this was something required by the tradition. This was something that all good Jews were supposed to do. But for whatever reason, she said, I'm not going to go. Of course, she gives a reason for like, oh, the child is weaned. But, you know, we never know about the human heart. She could have been secretly disobeying. She could have been set on doing things her own way. I don't know how many of us, we've done this. We say that we're going to obey God, but we always make excuses or find other paths or 
uh, this other alternative for us just to get out of what we really feel like God wants us to do. In many ways, we, we, we have that kind of mentality. Like God says, you know, go minister and go love on this. Go, go, sh- go share your faith with this person. And then we kind of have to, and we say, and we invite them to life group. Oh, hey, do you want to come to life group? I'm kind of doing this, you know, like hangout thing. And we kind of read different things and we share. And it's great. You should come and join us. And we're like, oh, I'm done. I did my job, God. And we excuse ourselves from fully obeying what it is that God wanted us to do. Or God wants us to go in a certain direction, and we run away, or we delay it. We do different things to excuse ourselves, or to find alternatives that make us feel like we obey, but we really didn't fully obey. And the, the, the interesting thing is, so many of us, we feel like we need to be, I, I want my own freedom to do what I want. I want to do something that is according to my own plan, and I don't want anyone else to have any kind of input. Because as soon as someone else has input, then what do we have to do? We have to follow through with what we said that we would do. And interestingly enough, Hannah seems to have this independence. She seems to be able to get her way. Uh, Clearly, her husband doesn't give her any help. He says, do what seems best to you. Wait until you weaned him. Only Lord, may the Lord establish your word. That's just a nice way of saying do whatever you want, and we just cover it with some nice Christian jargon so that I could feel good about being your husband and letting you stay home. And then what does she do? She decides to remain. She makes her own decision. She weans the child. She brought up the bull on her own. She brought the flower. She, she eventually then, when the child was fully weaned, she actually brought the child to Eli, and then she reported to him what happened. So many of us, we see this example of Hannah, and we look and we see, wow, she was able to make her own decisions. She didn't get accountability, and, you know, we we look and we're like, why would she actually do that? How is it that she's able to have this idea of being able to make her own decisions without the accountability, without the, the pressure from her husband, and still be able to obey the Lord? Because for us, it's really difficult. For us, you know, we, we constantly see this tension in our lives saying, you know, my, my, my fleshy body wants to do something on my own, but then my spirit nature is saying, like, oh, you should obey the Lord and follow him. But constantly our sinful side is always winning out. And we always feel this need to say, you know, I don't want, to, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I just want to learn to just obey God on my own. Just let me make my own decisions because if I'm not making my own decision, then it's not really out of my own heart. It's not really my own initiative. It's not really my own desire. But independence doesn't mean zero accountability. Good accountability only works if we're proactive about looking for it. And the thing that really reveals the condition of our hearts is what do we do when there's no one else around us, when there's no one else there to watch us, to remind us, to ask us? What do we do in those situations? When we're fully independent, when we feel fully like I could do whatever I want, what do we do in those moments? When, for those of us who are working, when we go on travel, on business trips, 
We don't really communicate with other people. We're on our own. We have our own hotel. What is it that you do? What kind of money do you spend? What do you do in your leisure time? Those of us who are students, you're free, right? You don't have family here, unless you're from Hong Kong, right? I, sorry for those who are you're like forever under your parents' like, control. You're like, Lord, please, freedom. I need some freedom. Or those of us who our families are not here, and you're like, yes, I can finally do whatever I want. What is it that you do that reveals something about your attitude? What is it that you do when your life of leader is not there? When it's that break time, life group is over, you're like, yes, praise the Lord. That life group is dead. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I have these three weeks. I can't wait to do whatever I want, and no one's going to ask me any questions. My LCG is over, so they can't keep me accountable. <laughs> the things that we do during those times reveal what's really in our hearts. Those are the times when we feel like, oh, I could do like, all the things that I really felt like I couldn't do during the year because I had accountability, because there was someone who was asking me questions. There were people challenging me about my faith to make faith-based decisions. Now I have this window of opportunity. I can live my own life. We want independence. We want the freedom to do whatever we want. But my challenge is that when we see that happen, that should reveal something about who we are about what we believe about God. In Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37, in the New Living Translation, it says, You have heard, you have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows, you must carry out the vows you made to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head, for you cannot turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. How many of us, when we make a promise to God, when we see something that he wants us to obey, and when we're challenged with a truth, with a promise, that no matter who's around us, what's going on, what accountability we have, we're willing to say, yes, I will. That our yeses are our yeses and our noes are our noes. That we don't have this dichotomy of like, yes, when I'm community, then I will do everything good and I will follow God. But then as soon as I'm out, then I'm free. That's real freedom. Perfect love casts out all fears. Freedom. I don't have to be afraid of anything. I just do whatever I want. This is what happens when we, we live our lives in secret. Even, even your roommates can't, can't even pick up on the things that you're doing because you're always leaving. You're always gone. You come back at odd hours of night because you don't want anyone to know what you've been doing. I think it's, it's really hard. Once You should just get married, right? Then you have a permanent roommate who knows exactly what you're doing at all times during the day. And you can't hide anything. And some of us, we need this accountability because our hearts are so wicked and so sinful that we're just going to get away with everything if it were just up to us by ourselves. Like, I think for me, like, I, now, now that I have a permanent roommate, it's, like, really difficult to do whatever I want whenever I want. 
And I realized, like, my heart is so wicked. Like, my heart is so wicked. Like, there are moments, like, you know, when, when I was living by myself, I could do whatever I want. Just go home, you know, just, like, scroll through Instagram. You know, for me, like, my other go-to is not just Instagram. It's, like, news, BBC News. I'll just, like, scroll through and read lots of articles. And, like, even recently, I was, like, like in my room, like, scrolling through, and, like, I got caught. I got caught. Like, I was, like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't be doing this. But I realized, like, just naturally, without any accountability, that's just the sinfulness of my heart. And now that I have a permanent roommate, I just can't get away with it anymore. I'm just like, oh, shoot, my bad. You know, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And some of us, we need this accountability. Some of us, we need to be proactive in inviting people into our lives because our tendency on our own by ourselves is that we are wicked and depraved and that we will go on to our own route. We will go down our own path. And if it weren't for other people that God is putting in our lives, that we would totally go astray. It shows where our hearts are, whether we really want to obey God or not. And when we see this kind of accountability happen, I really believe that God is going to use it to allow us to connect with him. He's going to allow us to experience him in a deeper way. He's going to allow us to have that kind of independence where we say, yes, God, I want to obey you. And maybe part of being independent, part of actually saying, God, I want to obey you, is actually inviting people into our lives to keep us accountable. Is actually inviting someone to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, like, I want to share these things with you now because I know later I'm going to be tempted and I'm not going to want to tell anyone. Hey, brother, hey, sister, like, I'm going to message you whenever something comes up because later when we meet up, I know I'm not going to share it because that's just my natural tendency. I'm wondering if we can see our, our own freedom, our own independence in, in a way where we can actually proactively invite accountability, invite people into our lives to actually speak into our lives. And this is the powerful thing about Hannah. When she finally goes up to the temple, after God gives her a son, and praise God, he remembered her. God listened to her prayer, and he remembered her. And as she comes back and she celebrates all the things that God had done, she says in verse 28 in the Amplified, she says, Therefore I have also dedicated him to the Lord, him being Samuel. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And they worship the Lord there. And the New Living Translation, it says, Now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worship the Lord there. Hannah, he, she, she gives her son, her one son, that she had been so distressed about, that she had been so painfully broken over, that she had been so miserable about because she couldn't have a son. She gives this son to back to God to serve in the temple for the rest of Samuel's life. She knows. She knows that this was something that she wanted so dearly. But her example of being able to give him back to God, her proactive even sharing to Eli to say, this is the son that I prayed for. This is the prayer. This is the vow that I made to God. And now I want to fulfill it. I want to fulfill it because God has blessed me so much. He has remembered me in all my affliction, in all my difficulty, in all my pain. 
And I don't know, like, for some of us, we look at this passage and we say, wow, it must have been, it's just so easy. Hannah's this amazing person. It must have been so, so easy for her. And we have a few wives here. It probably, there's no way it would be easy. For you to give up your son, I can't understand. All of us men, we probably will never be able to understand. To give up your son that you, that you carried in your womb for nine months, to give him back up to the Lord, it must have been an excruciatingly, pain, excruciatingly painful process for her to go through. But for her to still obey, it reveals and it shows how much she experienced God and how she obeyed and her obedience wasn't based on just her feelings, wasn't just based on what she wanted that moment, but it was based on her trust in the Lord. Like what Elizabeth Elliot says in her book, Discipline, the Glad Surrender, she says... It is Christ who is to be exalted, not our own feelings. We will know him by obedience, not by emotions. Our love will be shown by obedience, not by how good we feel about God at a given moment. And love means following the commands of God. Do you love me? Jesus asked Peter. Feed my lambs. He was not asking, how do you feel about me? For love is not a feeling. He was asking for action. And when we think about our own feelings, when we think about our own obedience, when we think about, God, I just want to do whatever I want. I'm wondering if many of us, we have to really think about, is this something that I just want to do, I just feel like doing, or is this something that I need to do and I desire to do because I know who God is in my life and I know who he is, I know what he's done, I know what he's accomplished, and so therefore I will decide to obey. Not because I always just feel it, but because I know that's who God is in my life. I want to close out with these two verses in Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And this is uh, uh, Hannah's worship. This is her prayer. This is her perspective of God. Uh, in verses 1 and also verses 6 and 7. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. In verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And when I read these verses, this really shows Hannah's perspective. It wasn't that she was so great. It wasn't that she was so faithful. It wasn't that she was so able to somehow obey on her own. But it was because she knew who God was. It was because she saw somehow that God was her salvation. God was her redemption. God was the one who answered her prayer. God was her everything. That her son was no longer her everything. Her pain was no longer her everything. For she says, he, the Lord kills and brings to life. He gives, he takes away. God is the one who's in control of everything and anything that we go on in our lives and in her life. And I'm wondering, if we look to Jesus' life, we realize that this was his standard and this was his obedience. That he knew, even though he did not feel like it, even though he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if you can take this away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He was in such pain. He was in such anguish. But he still obeyed. He still obeyed the Father to say, because 
This is God's will. This is the Father's will. He went obediently to the cross to give his life for us. And our ability to obey, our ability to be honest, our ability to be submitted to God, to see him as who he is, is not because we've been in church for so long. It's not because we've been to retreat. It's not because of any of those things. It's because God is who he is. It's because he is who he says he is in his word. It's because he died for us. It's because he rose again for us. It's because he is now the king of kings and the Lord of lords that is seated at the right hand of God. That's the only reason we can obey him. Because left to our own devices, we will go our own path. But as we see who God is, as we look to him, as we see the sacrifice that he made, now it is our freedom. Now it is our choice. Now it is our ability to say, God, I want to obey you. In light of what you've done for me, I want to obey you because you've given everything to me. The amazing, and the amazing thing is God used Hannah to give birth to Samuel in this moment. And for some of you who know Old Testament, Samuel was used as a prophet to pick King David as the future king of Israel who was the forefather of Jesus. When we look at the whole history, we see Hannah was able to play a small part a small part, even through her own personal trials, she played a small part in God's greater redemptive work of bringing us the Messiah, who is Jesus. And I'm wondering for many of us, how many of us were able to see that our small obedience, our own perspective, the trials that we go through, God could really use that for his greater purpose as his greater kingdom. And that's why God's faithfulness enables us to be broken and heroic at the same time. When we look at Christ, our brokenness, God could use that for greater things. I want to give us some next steps as we close. The first is to be honest about your weaknesses with God and in community. Just be honest. Let's not put a facade. Let's not share generally. I want to challenge us, this coming life group, or whenever you have a hangout, or your next LCG, or the next time you, you share with someone that you're, you're in relationship with, and you're saying, hey, brother, hey, sister, I, there are just some things that I just never shared before. Some things that have been on my heart, I've never ever revealed this to anyone before, but I realize because of what God has done for me and because I want to be honest with him, I want to be with, honest with the community around me. I want to share. The second thing is be focused on God more than yourself in prayer. I think the number one thing that we pray for, and the number one, this is an honest confession, number one thing I pray for is myself. Just very selfish in that kind of way. I'm wondering if we can focus on God, we can focus on who he is, instead of always asking for things, instead of always complaining. Yes, you can spend some time complaining and be honest with him. But somewhere along the way, that perspective, that focus needs to turn toward God. Say, God, you are the creator of the universe. You're the one who created me. You knew me before I was in my mother's womb. That's how great you are. That's how holy you are. That's how amazing you are. All the things I'm going through, they just pale in comparison to what you're capable of. Let's pray God-focused prayers. Let's not focus on ourselves. And lastly, be uncompromising about obeying God. Be uncompromising about obeying God. Some of us, we need to find accountability. Some of us, we know what it is that we need to do. 
just for so long we haven't done it. I want to challenge us right now, like you're probably on WhatsApp or Facebook right now. Just take a moment, go to your LCG accountability, go to your life group leader and say, hey, I need to do X, Y, and Z. I need to do X, Y, and Z. Just share that. Keep me accountable. Because I know my, my tendency is to escape or to find another way out, to excuse myself. And I don't want to be that. I don't want to constantly go back to my old ways and never actually take steps to obey God. Can we stand together as we close?